Well, back in Thanksgiving a couple months ago, uh, there was a man standing on a subway in New York City, and he began to have a medical issue. We don't know exactly what it was, but instead of falling backwards, he fell forward onto the tracks. And what was scary about this is that there was a subway car on its way. And so uh, immediately there becomes a little panic and people are stirring and there's these, just praise God, there's these two police officers who are doing a transit sweep. And so they hear the commotion, they run down and they immediately jump on the subway tracks. What they found was that there was somebody who had already jumped down there, a passenger, and were helping to lift this person back up on the platform. Thankfully, they got him back up. But one of the officers who, who was at the bottom was still on the tracks as the uptown car number six was approaching. And so there was this scramble, and they were able to pull the police officer back on the platform just seconds before the train, subway train, pulled into the station. Praise God, everybody was fine. The, the man who had the medical issue was fine. But the governor and the mayor came out, and they praised those officers and a good Samaritan who jumped in to help the man who fell into the tracks. And I don't know about you, but I love stories like that. I mean, don't you just love a story where somebody just jumps in when they don't need to? Or, or the stories of police officers and firefighters and you know, EMT people who, who, who come at the right moment and, and they put their lives on the line. And I, I love especially that there's this good Samaritan, and this person is not even named, who jumps in and helps rescue this, this guy. And I wonder, you know, what, what does it really mean to be a good Samaritan? I think if you grew up in, in church or maybe you went to church camp as a kid, you've probably heard the story. It, it, it all comes from a parable of Jesus about what it means to actually be a good Samaritan. And I, I'm excited today for us to look at this because I just want to ask, like, what is Jesus telling us about being good Samaritans? What is a good Samaritan? Is it a good person who jumps in and helps somebody who's in need? Well, that's what it is if you look it up in the dictionary. But what is Jesus calling us to do in this parable about being a good Samaritan? So let's look here at Luke chapter 10 and, and see this, this parable. If you've been with us for the past month or so, we've been in a series called Parables, and Jesus taught somewhere between 30 and 50 parables in his, in, in his gospel ministry. And we're looking at just a collection of a few of our favorites and most obscure but this one for sure is some of your favorites, if not the most popular of all, the Good Samaritan. And I don't know about you, but it's a powerful story because it's a story about the most unlikely hero. And I think what, one thing that stories like this have a chance to do is they, 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 they have a chance to reveal to us like a powerful truth of what the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus is calling us to be good neighbors to be people that help other people. But I think there can be a little bit of a challenge in this, is that sometimes we can read a story like the Good Samaritan. We read a parable that Jesus teaches us, and we walk away thinking, what Jesus is calling us to do is to do better. Now, would you agree that Jesus wants us all to, to live for other people? Jesus wants us all to put other people first. Jesus wants us all to learn to put ourselves second. I think we see that all throughout Jesus' teaching. But if we take the, the Good Samaritan at face value, I think a lot of us can walk away saying, okay, God, what you're calling me to do is just to do better, to work harder. And it, it's a good message. But is it what Jesus really intends for us to take away? Or is there something deeper? Because in every one of Jesus' parables, if you've, 
If you've probably noticed by now, there is something deeper at play. So I think at the heart of this story, what Jesus is trying to do is he's not as much trying to inspire us to be better people. But what he wants to do is use the parable of the Good Samaritan to reflect a mirror on ourselves and to ask the question, where is our focus and our heart and our trust? So I want you to see this. This is going to be just a beautiful picture that Jesus gives us here in Luke chapter 10. So so flip there, Luke chapter 10. I want us to, to, to dig in deep and see what Jesus wants us to hear. Now, if you've been following along in our, in our greater story, um, we've been jumping around a little bit in these parables, but just to bring you up to speed, in Luke 10, it, we, we see that Jesus had just got done feeding the 5,000 in Luke 9. Jesus had, um, got, had been, went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, was transfigured in front of his disciples, uh, James, John, and Peter. We talked about that before Christmas. And now he sends out 72 of his followers to go around into the neighboring towns. And he says, go, don't take a money belt. Don't take you know, your backpack with your toiletry kit. Just go and be welcomed into the homes you're welcomed in and share the good news of the kingdom. And so we see these 72, these 36 pairs of people that go out, they come back and they're so excited. And, and that's what Luke 10 starts with. They're so fired up because they went out, they told people about Jesus. and People are getting excited about the kingdom of God. So they come back. And as they're talking with Jesus, there becomes this exchange that Jesus has with this lawyer. And this lawyer asks Jesus a question. And that's where I want to start today. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25. So, so look with me here. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just real quick, who is this guy? When the Bible talks about lawyers, they're not really talking about someone who uh, is a lawyer in the sense of what we have today. They're not people that uh, fight for the human rights or they're not people who are defense attorneys. Instead, they're people who devote their life to learning the law, uh, the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. They devote their life to learning it and to enforcing it, to understanding it, to conveying it and, and teaching it. So when this guy walks up to Jesus and asks the question, Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not actually curious. He's not actually asking Jesus the question. Instead, he's trying to trap Jesus. Like, if there's anybody that knew what the Old Testament said about what I must do to obtain eternal life, it was a lawyer, right? Like, these were the guys that fasted religiously. These were the guys that, like, gave a tenth of everything they had. So we know when they would get food out of their garden, they would give a tenth of their cumin and their uh, barbecue rub and you know, all those kind of things, right? Their barbecue sauce, they you know, pour it out for their past homies and you know, whatever, they'd give it to the Lord. And so you, you had this situation where these guys knew the law. So when he comes up to, to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's trying to trap Jesus because See, they had heard that Jesus had been talking about faith and the kingdom of God being something that was found in him. You know, Jesus would say things like, you know, uh, the kingdom of God um, is found in uh, what my father is revealing to you. And when you see me, you see my father. And so Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. And they, they heard this and they hated it because they were expecting a Messiah and it didn't look anything like Jesus. And they love following the rules. And here's this Jesus guy who's not talking about rules. He's talking about relationships, and they hated it. 
So they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Hoping that Jesus would say, follow me. Because then if he did, then they would hit him over the head with the Ten Commandments. They would make a big ruckus. But Jesus, like he always does, he, he turns it back on, on this man. And I want you to notice what, what he does. He, he says this, he, he turns it back on him and he, and he starts this conversation. But, but before we get there, I just want to, well, he wants you to notice something. Notice the word that he uses about an internal life. He says, what must I do to inherit it? Somebody say inherit. inherit. Right? What, what must I do to inherit e- eternal life? And what's interesting about this is I think it reveals something that is a standard operating procedure in the heart of mankind. And that's that all of us at some level, we, we think that there is something that we must do. There is an outward action that we must put into place to earn God's favor or to earn God's love, or to earn a ticket into eternal life. And you, you really get to see this this last week when I was in Israel, because you get to see it kind of come to life. I mean, this has been an issue since Genesis chapter 3. I mean, Genesis chapter 3, mankind decided, I want to be able to choose what's right and wrong for myself. And since then, we've been living in this world where we're all trying to make sense of what we need to do to make God happy. And so you see this in this man, in this Jewish man. 30, you know, 2,500 years, I'm sorry, 1,500 years after Moses wrote the law, and here is this man saying, well, we still have to earn God's love by keeping these rules. So, so here's interesting. Here's a picture of the Western Wall. I, I was here, I got, got to spend some time here. You'll, you'll notice at the Western Wall, you've got um, Jewish men, and the Jewish women were on the other side. So the Jewish men, and they've got Bibles out. They're reading the the Torah. They're praying to God, asking God to move and to intervene and to come. And so this is, you know, a lot of these guys are going there every day and and they're praying. What's interesting is you see this guy right here with the black hat on, right here in the front. So uh, the Orthodox Jews had a certain way they dressed. They would take the words of uh, the law, very literal. It says, don't cut the corners of your hair. So they grow long hair on the sides. And then they, 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 you know, they, they wear these cool hats. They wear these shirts with the tassels. And uh, they look just like Matisse Yahoo, if you guys know I'm talking about, the rapper from like 10 years ago. Like these dudes look cool. But it's all because they feel like they have to follow a certain set of rules. So God will hear their prayers or God will love them or God will, you know, approve of them. There's a verse actually in the Mosaic Law that talks about, it's really to keep people from taking young animals and um, cooking them with the milk of their mother. It's like a really strange, I don't want to go into this one, but it's a really strange law. Well, because of that, they don't eat, cheese with, they don't eat pizza with cheese and meat on it. You can get pizza, you get cheese pizza, or you can get like salami, but there's no cheese on it. It's weird. You can't get cheese on your burger, right? Like cheese and meat just don't exist in Israel, and that's a rule, right? Trying to keep this rule that happened 1,500 years ago in the Mosaic Law. Just There's all of these things. You, you see this outward action, like mankind is trying to earn his way to God, and so I, I live like this. On the other hand, you've got a collection of Islamic people living in Jerusalem, too. And here's a picture of the, the Dome of the Rock mosque. This mosque was built about 638 AD, I want to say, something like that. And um, it was built after the Romans were conquered. And it is a place where the Muslims go and worship. And there's actually two mosques. where This is where the temple was. So where Jesus came to the temple, this is now built in its place. 
And several times a day, you hear the call that goes over the loudspeakers for uh, the, the Muslim followers to make their way to the mosques. And there's mosques all over the place. And so you see, just in the culture, just being in Jerusalem for a few days, you see in the culture people working to do things, to be uh, put in a position where they feel like God is, is blessing them, or God's going to give them favor, or God's going to love them. And you might think, well, yeah, that's so old school. That's not what we do today. But think about this. It's 3,500 years later, 2,000 years since Jesus lived. And don't we do the same thing? Like, aren't we trying to do things hoping that God is, we're earning brownie points with God? Like, we're like, oh, man, I read my Bible every day this week. I prayed every day this week. I was a good Samaritan. I helped to open the door for the very sweet lady at the grocery store. And we begin to think that like these are things that we need to do to check the box, to earn points with God in hopes that God's going to bless me. So if I have a really good day, God, you love me. But what happens when you have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year? What happens? If you've been there, you begin to think, well, man, maybe God isn't very happy with me right now because I'm not doing all the things. So I think what we see here at the heart of man is this idea that we have to do things to earn God's favor. I want you to see Jesus is going to completely teach something different in this parable. And it might actually give you a fresh view of what he's talking about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because Jesus knows this guy's not asking about eternal life. And instead he's trying to, to trap him. So notice Jesus is, is the kind of guy that's hanging out with tax collectors. He's hanging out with sinners. And Jesus is telling a story of a gospel that says more like this. You're not the hero of your story. Instead, God is. See, the, the, the religious people want to be the hero. Jesus says, no, you're not the hero. Instead, you're the damsel in distress. It's God who's riding the steed towards the, the tower to rescue and fight the dragon rescue the damsel in distress. And they hated it. And Jesus is going to flip their view of what it likes to earn favor in God's eyes and be loved by God in this parable. So notice what Jesus does. He calls this guy to a duel, right? Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr style minus the pistols, of course. And so notice what he says here, verse 26. So the guy's like, how do I have to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? So this is a lawyer. Of course he knows, right? What's written in the law? What's written in the Mosaic Law, Jesus asked him, and notice this, how do you read it? Right? What's your interpretation of the law? And so, good, good, good question. Notice what he says. The guy gives a good answer. Look at verse 27. He says this, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he gives them a good answer. He gives them uh, what was known as the Shema. Somebody say Shema. So the Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6. It was this prayer that, that, that they were taught to pray, to, to live by, where it was, it was said, you know, there's only one God. He's your God. And you're to love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And you're to write his name on your foreheads and on your doorposts. It was interesting at the Western Wall, these guys were praying with these little boxes on their head, little plastic box with a, with a headband on it. And in it was Deuteronomy 6. They were praying. It was written on their foreheads. Like, see how literal these guys are, right? Like, the idea is it's on our mind. Like, literally, it's on their mind, right? 
And, and so this is the Shema. This was the right answer. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, we, we see that God commands people to love their neighbor as themselves. And this became known as the what? The great commandments. The Ten Commandments boil down to two, which Jesus talks about in uh, Matthew and Mark. And, and so this guy gives this answer, and notice what Jesus says to him. Look at verse 28. Jesus says this. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Remember, he said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, what does the law say? Love God, love others, like yourself. Jesus is like, right, do this. And you'll live. It seems like Jesus has given him the answer, right? Do the law. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor with everything you have, and then you'll have eternal life. But there's something under the the surface here. I, I, I I don't want you to miss. Notice this. Jesus is saying, yeah, that's right. Go and do that. Go and love God perfectly. Go and love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Because if you do that, then you'll have eternal life. If you do this, then you'll have life. But there's an undertone here that Jesus wants this man to see. And this is why he gives him the parable. Because he's, Jesus wanted him to see, you can't do that perfectly. Nobody can. Nobody can perfectly love God with everything they have. Nobody can perfectly love their neighbor uh, before themselves. Because, as Martin Luther says, that we have an inward curve, an inward bent. And we're always going to put self first because it's a result of the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. And so Jesus wants this man to see, you can't do this. But, but notice what the man does. Instead of the man going, you're right, Jesus. Wow, man, that is good stuff, right? Notice what he says. And instead, he gets kind of smug. And he's like, well, then, who is my neighbor? Notice what he says. Look, in verse 27, he's trying to justify himself, right? You like Mr. Burns, right, on Simpsons? He's like, well, then, who is my neighbor? And, you know, imagine him and his buddies like, oh, you know, surely it's not them. It's got to be them. And so Jesus tells the parable here. He tells the crowd a story of the good Samaritan. And I want you to see it. Jesus is trying to get this guy to see that we can't love God perfectly and we can't love our neighbor perfectly. We need somebody to do it for us. Okay? Check this out. Here we go. He's going to go into the parable of the good Samaritan. And I just want to push pause real quick. If you've been following along in our greater story series, you're going to see that this man smugly is asking, like, well, I'm keeping the law. Who's my neighbor so I can keep it even better? And Jesus is going to answer with this parable but Israel has done a horrible job of loving their neighbors and loving God, right? Like, they get rescued from Egypt. What do they do? Worship, uh, build a golden calf. Like, God brings them into the promised land. What do they do? They begin worshiping false gods. They begin killing and fighting amongst themselves. I mean, if there's one thing Israel has done terribly, it's loving God and loving other people, right? But yet, because of their arrogance, they think, well, they can do it better. Oh, I can do it. It's kind of like us, right? Like, we think, well, I'll do it better than they did. Oh, they were terrible leaders. I'll do it better than them. No, right? Like government systems, they kind of repeat themselves because we all think that we're better than the last guy was. Reality is we all have broken hearts, right? And so Jesus is going to teach something powerful here. Notice this. Notice what he says here. He teaches us this. Without God's help, we don't have the capacity to love God perfectly and love our neighbor as ourselves. We just can't do it. This is going to be the theme that Jesus wants us to get to take away from this, that we cannot be perfect on our own. We need somebody to do it for us. So notice, here's the parable. 
Chapter 30, or chapter 10, verse 30. Notice what Jesus says. He says this. Now, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, so here's the premise. There's a guy who's going to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. Maybe he's going down for one of the feasts, or he's going to go down to the temple and make a sacrifice. But he falls upon robbers, and he's lying on the side of the road half dead. So here's a picture of Jericho. I actually got to go see Jericho, which is really cool. Um, Jericho is interesting. You see some trees there. There's a spring in Jericho, so there's these beautiful trees in the midst of a brutal desert, right? And so you're looking west there to the mountains that you have to cross to go to Jerusalem. Makes sense when you read Psalm 121. And David says, I look to the hills, and I wonder, where does my help come from? Right? This was a, a really, really difficult road, and that's why people went in packs. So this guy going by himself is bad news because he's going to get beat up because it was known as the way of blood. Like there were robbers and people who were just waiting to jump and rob you. And that's what happens in the story. Of course, this is a fictional story, but happened all the time in real life. This guy's walking from Jericho. He gets beat, he gets mugged, and he's laying on the side of the road half dead. Now imagine, this road isn't a road. Like don't, it's not like I-25, right? It's like, it's like the size of half of this rug. Like it's a tiny road, road, okay? So you can't miss if there's a dude half dead laying on the side of the road, right? That's part of Jesus' point. And notice what happens. So, so notice who comes first. Verse 31, some of you know the story. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, what did he do? He stopped by, nursed the guy, picked him up, prayed over him. No. He crossed to the other side. Most likely, the priest had to step over the guy on the tight road. Now, the priests were the heroes. This lawyer, the priest, would have been heroes. If there was anybody that was going to help, it was the priest. This was the guy. This is the guy, the God's chosen people from the the family of the Levites. But what does he do? He steps over him. Now, we don't don't know why. Like maybe he was late to a very important date, right? Maybe he had to get to the temple because he needed to to do some ceremonial things. Um, In in the Jewish culture, if a priest touched somebody, if if anybody touched somebody who was dead, then they had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. You know, it was was really designed to keep, like, you know, um, disease out of the camp. But they took it to such another level where the priests, if they were walking to the temple, the priests wouldn't use the main road that people used. They built a ridiculously huge bridge for the priests to walk so they didn't have to touch or bump into anybody just in case that person was unclean. So these priests worked really hard to stay away from anything that wasn't perfectly clean, right, based on their standards. And so it basically says that he just stepped over and just keeps on going. Now, I'm sure the crowd's going, well, yeah, that's, that's not really good. You probably should have helped. Well, so what's the next guy? Well, look at verse 32. And so it says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Levite does the same thing. He steps over the dead guy too and keeps walking. Now, the Levites where the family the priest came from, but they weren't all priests. A lot of times they were the worship leaders in the temple. So imagine Darren, right, walking down the little windy path. And of course, Darren's going to stop, right? Like we know Darren will stop uh, unless he's wearing his white tennis shoes. But most of the time, he, he's going to stop. But this guy doesn't stop either. And so if you're listening to this story, you're like, these are the two dudes that are, should stop. Like these are the heroes in that culture. 
Like these were, in that culture, the brain surgeons and the police officers, right? Like they're the ones that are going to stop, but neither of them do. And so the crowd's got to be wondering, okay, what's Jesus trying to teach us? And then notice who actually stops to help. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. And I'm sure at the moment he said Samaritan, all of the women and children would go, no, not the Samaritan, right? Like this is like, you know, um, like King Koopa, right? You know, coming to rescue, you know, Princess Peach, right? Rather than take him to the tower and wait for Mario to come, right? So like the Samaritan is the bad guy. But it says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him. And notice what happened. What did he have? Compassion, right? Now, you guys probably remember some of this. The Samaritans were the people who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, were captured by the Assyrians. Half of them were taken to Assyria. Assyria brought other people to Israel, and they all intermixed. And so now, 600 years later, Jesus is here, and the Samaritans are half-breeds, right? They're looked at as dogs. So the Israel people, the proud Israel um, or the, I'm sorry, the proud Jewish men and women looked at the Samaritans as dogs, right? So they hated them. Because of that, the Samaritans hated Israel. So there's this hatred. And so Jesus uses this story to teach us the most unlikely person that could ever come, a Samaritan. It'd be like if, if, if me as a Chiefs fan, I had my Mahomes jersey on, and I was laying in a ditch, and then Joe Richardson came walking by with his Broncos jersey on. It'd be like Joe picking me up, and, right? You would never do that, Right? Well, it was a Raiders fan. Maybe it was a Raiders fan. But the reality is, it's like, this is the most unlikely guy to help this man who's half dead in the ditch. And so that's the shock and awe of the story. Jesus is trying to say, well, who was the neighbor, right? Who actually was the neighbor? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And, and, and so you'll, you'll see this all the time. There's actually a story. This is chapter 4. Go read it later. Luke 9. Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria because it was faster to get from Galilee to Jerusalem by going through Samaria. So Jesus sends ahead some of his guys, and he says, hey, go get us somewhere to stay tonight. Get us something to eat. Well, James and John go, and they can't find anywhere. Like, none of the Samaritans will actually let them go, right, because Samaritans hate the Jews. And so James and John are like, Jesus, they won't rent us any of their Airbnbs, right, and they won't even let us eat at their restaurants, and they look at Jesus and they go, should we, call down thunder, uh, should we call down lightning and fire from heaven and just destroy them all, right? And Jesus is like, of course not. Like, really, you know? Like the Son of Man came to save the lost and you're trying to smoke out the Samaritans? That's how much they hated them, right? They hated each other. And so Jesus tells a story and it's the shock of it's the Samaritan, which in real life, would the Samaritan do that? Probably not. But in the story, he does. And so now Jesus looks at him, and he, and, he, and he tells this story. He says this in verse 34. And so the Samaritan, he, he took him, he bound him, he, he bound up his wounds, wounds, he poured oil and wine, which was like a, a, you know, an ancient antiseptic, right, neosporin, and Band-Aids, and then he set him on his own animal, right? So he gets off his horse, and he puts the guy on his horse, or donkey or whatever, and he took him to an inn to take care of him. And then in 35, the next day, he took out two denarii, which this was about 60 days worth of money, right? This would pay the bill for about two months. He took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back, right? So he flops down the black card on the table, like, I got it. I'm gonna come back and I'll get it all covered. So real quick, I just want you to notice something about this Samaritan. 
Notice the Samaritan does three things, right? And I think for us, if you want to know, like, how do we care for people? Well, I think there's a lesson here of these three things. Notice, if you want to change the world, do these three things. First, make your bed in the morning, right? We've talked about that, right? Make your bed. Um, second, well, really first, open your eyes. Notice the Samaritan looked down, he had compassion on him. He saw him, he, and he, he, he was willing to see. The, 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 the Levite and the priest, they stepped over and walked. But the, the Samaritan, no, he was willing to see. Second, he, he was compassionate. He, he, he found, he made the decision to, to take pity on this guy. He was empathetic of him, which is what Jesus did over and over. Was, the Gospels tell us that Jesus had compassion, that Jesus loved, right? So this Samaritan, he took care of this guy because he had compassion. Notice third, he acted. He got down from his, his animal. He put this man on his animal. He took him and bandaged his wounds. He used all of his own things to take care of this man. And then he left his credit card with the innkeeper. And so like Jesus is teaching us something in this story about how we can care for each other. But then notice what Jesus says. He looks back at the lawyer after telling this story. And he says, okay, let me ask you. Who, who was the, the, the neighbor to the man? Out of all three of these guys, who was the neighbor to the man? And what did the lawyer say? Well, it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, likewise, you go and do the same. And so Jesus tells this story. And it's, it's like mic drop, right? Like, you go and have mercy. Boom. And so Jesus tells this story. And it's an amazing story. And every time I read this story, it gets me fired up. Because I think, man, I just need to go and I need to become a better Samaritan. I need to go and I need to like, do a better job of picking people up out of the ditch and keeping my eyes open for people that are going through hard situations. And, and I think, Jesus, you're calling me to do more. And we should do more. Like, we should take care of people who are in bad situations. Jesus does care to call us to take care of the needy and to help those who are falling on hard times. But is that where the story stops? It's not. See, there's something that's going on here that we can't miss. Notice this. Jesus is talking to a lawyer who loves rules. And so if you take this in a vacuum, it sounds like Jesus is saying, rule number 614, if you find somebody lying in a ditch, you pick them up and you take them to a hotel, right? Like that's kind of what it sounds like. Just add one more rule to the list, and then once you do, you're good. But is that really what Jesus is saying? See, here's what you guys to see. Don't miss this. This story is not about needing another rule. The point of this story is not that we need to work harder. The point of this story is not that we need to do something extra. Jesus wants us to hear this story and think, wow, that is impossible. It's impossible for the Samaritan to do this for this man. It is impossible. If the priest and the Levite can't do it, there's no way I can do it. Jesus wants us to see that, that we can't do this what our own, on our own. And here's what Jesus wants us to ask. Well, then who can do it? How am I supposed to fulfill the law? How am I supposed to love God perfectly and love my neighbor perfectly as myself? Jesus wants us to ask that question because Jesus is saying, you can't do it, but I can and I will. Guys, don't miss this. Jesus is telling us, I am the good Samaritan. Jesus is calling you to be a good Samaritan. Should we follow in his footsteps? Absolutely. But Jesus is telling us, I am the good Samaritan. See, here's something that I want us to see here. Is this story isn't about us becoming the good guy. 
Should we want to be the good guy and take care of people in need? Should we? Yes. But this story isn't about us. Jesus isn't trying to inflate our ego. This story isn't about us. This story is about Jesus. Jesus is saying that I am the one coming by the people that hate me. I am the one who is getting off the animal. I am the one who stepped out of heaven. I am the one who has come down. I am the one who scooped you up from the ditch, half dead, robbed, and beaten because of sin and brokenness and terrible things in life. And I'm the one that puts oil and wine on your wounds and bandage, bandages you with the best care. And then I am the one who takes you to the innkeeper and says that I'm going to foot the bill so you can be nursed and brought back to health. Jesus is, is not saying, you guys need to become the, the good Samaritan. Jesus is saying, recognize, guys, that I am the good Samaritan. So I think one of the reasons Jesus tells us and speaks in parables is he wants us to find ourselves in God's story. And so we love to ask, well, who am I in this story? And if Jesus is the good Samaritan, then who am I? And I think Jesus wants us to see if, if you don't personally know him, if there hasn't been a time in your life when you have said yes to Jesus, then who are you in the story? You're the dead guy. You're the dead guy on the side of the road, bleeding out of your ears. And Jesus is the one who comes to bring us and scoop us up and to bring us to a place where we can heal and that's what the gospel is all about, guys. For God so loved the, the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus comes to rescue us and to take us to the innkeeper. And so if that's you today, if you're tuning in and watching, and you say, you know, there's never been a time in my life when I've said yes to Jesus, do you see that you've been beaten and robbed by sin and a broken world? and the desire to be valued and to, be, to prove your worth, and you're lying on the side of the road half dead, and Jesus comes by to bring you back to full health, and Jesus is saying, trust in me, believe in me. Are you the dead guy? And here's the beautiful thing about this story. For those of, of us who have said yes to Jesus, who were once in the gutter, who were once half dead, and Jesus has brought us out, and Jesus has put us on the two feet, our own two feet, and now we're standing on the rock. You know who we are in this story? We want to be the good Samaritan, but that's Jesus. Do you know who we are? You're the innkeeper. Like Jesus is telling us this story, and he is the good Samaritan. And he's saying, for now, for you that have been rescued and made well and made whole, you now are the innkeeper. Because I'm going to bring people to you. For you to bring back to health. And I'm going to pay the bill for you to nurse them back to a place where they can begin to live and experience the joy and the peace and the hope of God's presence and God's nearness and the community of God's people. Forefront. We are innkeepers. Like this church is to be an inn for the people that Jesus has bandaged and brought to us. That your homes are to be little kingdom Airbnbs all over Denver and wherever you're tuning in from, Kentucky, Missouri, Kansas. God's calling all of us to be innkeepers. Isn't that beautiful? 
that God's not calling you to go out and find the people in the ditch. Jesus is the one finding them, and he's bringing them to us, and he's asking us to nurse them back to health, to fullness, to rest, to beautiful peace. See, I think here's what Jesus is saying is that Jesus wants us to see that he gives us everything we need to care for the people he brings us. When you think you're the good Samaritan, it's easy to get overwhelmed and be like, I can't do it, Jesus. Like, what do you want me to do? Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be the good Samaritan because that's, I am he. I want you to be the innkeeper. And I want you to take care of the people I bring. Notice verse 35. Verse 35 again, it said, he took out two denarii, enough for 60 days. And he says, when I come back, I'll pay whatever's left over. See, Jesus gives us everything we need to take care of the people that he rescues. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? And I think one of the realities that we all face is when we want to be the good Samaritan, when we turn it on ourselves to do the good deeds, then we, even if we're doing them for the right reason, we can do them in the wrong order. And so what can happen is Jesus tells us to put others first, to care for people who are in need. And what we can end up doing is we can begin doing that for the right reasons. But then we can end up looking and going, well, man, I did good today. Right? Anybody ever been there? You're like, you do something for somebody else, and all of a sudden you're like, man, that feels pretty good. And you're like, well, look at all the people I've helped today. Look at all the good I've done this week. Look at all the people I have blessed this month. And what happens is we have this danger of starting to like, put our own value ahead of Jesus's. And all of a sudden, we're doing all these good things, and I'm doing them for Jesus? Well, yeah, kind of. But I'm doing them for me, actually, so I can feel good about myself. And we're in danger of thinking, look at all the things I do for my community, which are good things, but I begin doing them for me. See, when we become the innkeeper, Jesus is saying that I am the good shepherd, and I, or I am the good Samaritan. He's a good shepherd too, but I am the good Samaritan, and I'm bringing them to you so that you can be a good neighbor, and you can nurse these people and care for them based on what I've called you to do. And so we can be good neighbors for him. We can be good innkeepers for Jesus. See, I think Jesus is saying this. Our good deeds aren't done to earn God's love. Our good deeds aren't done to earn God's favor. Our good deeds aren't done to make us feel worthy and purposeful and valued. But no, our good deeds are done because of God's love. Because when I think, what are the minimum requirements? I'm going to do just what is minimum. I'm going to show up just enough. I'm going to get there just on time. But when I think and operate out of grace, and I ask the question that what am I here to accomplish, I realize it's not for me, but it's done for Jesus. It's not done just for me, but it's done for him and us. So Jesus isn't calling us to be the good Samaritan. He's calling you to be a really good innkeeper. And operating out of your purpose and your calling of what Jesus has challenged us to be, which is good neighbors who love God with everything we have and put our neighbors in front of us with everything we have, knowing that we'll never do it perfectly, but God can. I was reading an article this week about a woman named Hannah Ford. And Hannah um, lived in South Carolina and spent her life as a seamstress. Uh, she was um, a widow. Her husband had passed away. And then in 1983, she retired after a great career 
But she retired, and she was sitting at home, and she was starting to feel just kind of bored and a little lonely. And so a friend of hers said, well, why don't you think about getting involved in foster care? And so she said, you know, I, I think I'll look into this. And so Hannah d- decides to foster a child, and then foster another child, and then foster another child. 1983, 40 years ago, and over the last 40 years, Miss Hannah, as she's called, has fostered 189 kids. That is being an innkeeper for God. That is someone who takes those that are, are experiencing loss and brokenness and pain and, and, and sorrow and welcoming them in to your home and to your church and to your community and into your family so they can see and feel the love of Jesus and know that they're meant for so much more than a broken world had to offer. See, I want to ask for a friend as we close, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Where is God calling you to be a really good innkeeper? Like maybe it's foster care, like Miss Hannah, or, or, or adopting a child. or Maybe it's adopting the, the, the neighbor across the street who you know has been walking through a hard season and just inviting them over for dinner often. Or it's taking somebody who's walking through a really hard time and meeting them for coffee for once a week. Or it could be something so different. But God is calling you to take in those that Jesus has rescued and help walk them back to a place of hell. And his promise is that as we do, we will find our purpose and our value and our calling in our lives and realize that life isn't about trying to do more and be better, but life is about following in the footsteps of Jesus and being the hands and feet of the one that we call king. So Jesus calls us to be the best innkeepers we can be. So here's my, my, my just one, one quick challenge for you this week. I encourage you guys to pray every day. God, where are you calling me to be an innkeeper? Who have you put in my life that I can care for? And make that your prayer this week. And I promise you that God will open your eyes and give you compassion so you can act and you can care for those that God loves so much, just like you. Would you pray with me?